going out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello, everyone. My name is Lainey Hameson. Welcome to our show. Talk out of school on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week is Joanna Garcia, who is a longtime parent activist, the chief of staff to Senator Robert Jackson, and the co-chair of the Class Size Working Group, which was appointed by Chancellor Banks to help develop a class size reduction plan in accordance with the new state law. She'll give us a, a brief description of how this law came about, what the class size working group has been has been developing over the last few months, and how you can weigh in on the final plan. But first, some local news. The massive school bus strike that was feared has apparently been averted as most of the busing companies negotiated a new contract with the bus drivers union. Unfortunately, that is not yet the case with probably the largest company, NYC Bus, which was a private company that the New York City Department of Education acquired a couple of years ago. Whether they'll be able to negotiate a deal with the union is as yet undetermined. Last week, there were joint hearings of the City Council's Technology and Education Committees about the DOE's plan to expand ed tech and artificial intelligence and use AI teaching assistance in the classroom. We testified about how dangerous this is in terms of student privacy and also the way in which online learning has been shown to undermine the quality of education. While the DOE claims they are protecting student data privacy, schools have suffered a series of serious breaches that release the personal data of nearly a million New York City students, and the DOE still doesn't fully comply with the state student privacy law, which was passed in 2014, nearly a decade ago, in terms of requiring its contracts with vendors to ensure rigorous encryption, the minimization and deletion of data, and the prohibition of the sale and commercialization of student information. In addition, as pointed out by a recent UNESCO report, putting education online is very detrimental to the ability of most students to focus, learn, and stay engaged in school. And this is especially true of disadvantaged students, even when they have full access to the internet and all the technologies being used. I'll put links to this important UNESCO report, as well as our testimony and privacy presentation that we gave last week on the WBAI website and podcast sites. Ironically, the day before and the day of the council hearings, there were system-wide internet outages at many New York City schools that prevented anyone from getting online, apparently provoked by too many kids being assigned to take their math assessments at the same time. Assessments that, by the way, have never been shown to help teachers diagnose their students' learning needs or help them progress. This administration seems to be even more intent on expanding online testing than previous ones, And I've even heard of New York City schools now where kindergarten kids as young as four and five are required to take online tests in math. I wonder why this administration seems to have learned so little from the widespread failures of remote learning during the COVID pandemic. Speaking of the pandemic, the number of hospitalizations of New Yorkers with COVID has been rising. 
But the DOE has said little about what parents should do if their children get sick and are no longer encouraging COVID testing, masking, vaccinations, or anything at all. We have heard anecdotal reports that many students and teachers have come down with COVID, but instead of ramping up awareness of the need for preventive measures, DOE officials instead removed the COVID map, map that tracks infections in schools after two years of reporting on this issue. Their philosophy seems to be that if they turn a blind eye to the problem, maybe it will go away. And there's yet more bad news on the budget front. The mayor has called on all city agencies, including the DOE, to cut their budgets by 15% for next year. And the first round of proposed cuts is due next month. Ever since Mayor Adam took office, school budgets have been on the chopping block every year, despite an increase of more than $1 billion in funding from the state. Now I'd like to bring on my special guest, Joanna Garcia, who's a longtime parent activist, the chief of staff to Senator Robert Jackson, and the co-chair of the class size working group appointed by the chancellor to help come up with a plan to lower class size. Joanna, welcome to Talk Out of School. Thank you for having me, Laney, and thank you for that great update. Can you tell me uh, and our listeners a, a little bit about your background as a parent and activist in New York City schools? Uh, sure. Um, I think foremost, um, what makes me, uh, the parent, uh, that I am is that I myself am a product of New York City public schools. Um, and I raised my children in the public school system as well. And I sat on SLTs, uh, parent associations was president of the president's council in district six, as well as a member of CEC six appointed by former uh, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, um, and subsequently elected by my peers uh, to be president of CEC6. And I have joined several groups statewide and citywide uh, just in the fight to bring equity uh, to our school system. And And you have three children, is that right? I do. I have three children. One of them, it, you know, I don't know if I can still say she's uh, a child. She's 22. Um, and actually, she was one of uh, she was, a, I'd say, a plaintiff with me um, in a class size lawsuit that we'll talk about later. Uh, but yes, I have a 22 year old and I have two children in high school. So when did you start working for Robert Jackson and how did you meet him? Um, I started working for then city council member Jackson, I believe it was 2008 or nine. Uh, and I first met him actually on a humanitarian trip, uh, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, he was there, uh, helping provide medical aid in terms of medicine, prenatal vitamins to a location in the Dominican Republic uh, that was really ravaged um, by lead poisoning. And I was there, um, interesting enough, as a illustrator, because I do have a background in art <laughs> that most people don't know about. Mm -hmm. And I had illustrated a, a book kind of chronicling uh, the story of that part of the Dominican Republic and how everyone corralled uh, to clean up the site. And then um, after that, um, I got to know more of my elected officials. I was someone who felt that 
I really didn't want a great deal to do with elected officials, um, but I did see the work that was done on this humanitarian trip. Subsequently, I applied for a position in his office as legislative budget director uh, in the city council. And he was also at that time the chair of the education committee. And that's where I was able to see not only the injustices that I felt I was experiencing with my children's education as a parent, um, but in regards to policy um, and governance, what was going on with the education system. So now Senator Jackson, or RJ, as he's often called, when he was a school board member, or actually president of the school board in District 6 in Upper Manhattan, he started the campaign for fiscal equity lawsuit more than 20 years ago. Can you? And that was, I guess, before you met him. But can you tell us a little bit about that lawsuit how it involved class size and the law that followed called the Contracts for Excellence? Yes. Um, so uh, he often tells a story of how uh, one of his daughters, um, it was their first day in kindergarten, and I believe it was his wife, Fika, who um, was at a parent meeting at the school. And other parents were asking her to get involved in the parent association. Uh, and her response uh, was, sure, I'll send my husband. And so that's how Robert Jackson got involved in parent activism. Um, and he really, what he always terms as, got a really good education um, from the active parents of PSIS 187. Uh, he was subsequently, uh, he was then elected on what was back then termed as the local school board, which is what we call CECs now. Uh, and he was president of the local school board. And during that journey, um, he, the school board had an attorney, Mike, by the name of Michael Rebell. And there was a great deal of conversation of the inequities in funding, uh, between New York City and the rest of the state. And at some point between there and becoming a city council member, uh, as a parent activist, actually, he said that they should sue. Uh, he told Michael Rebell, we need to sue New York State because this won't stand. Uh, it was a long, hard journey, um, but it involved 150 miles of walking uh, from downtown Manhattan all the way to Albany. It, it lasted more than 13 years of litigation, uh, but ultimately they won $16 billion on behalf of New York State children. Um, what was at the heart of that when we talk about the inequities uh, was, of course, uh, the deep underfunding of our schools and the importance of providing a sound basic education. And that is how the course ruled. And as a result of that lawsuit, the state legislature, um, in response to that, created what is called Contracts for Excellence as a mechanism uh, to provide equity in the schools. And at the heart of programming and addressing those inequities was class size. And that's why there, there are many folks who want to separate the funding that we have fought for for decades for our schools from class size as if they were two separate conversations, two separate fights. But at the end of the day and at the end of those long miles of so many advocates, including Robert Jackson walking, class size was always part of the conversation and of the fight. Right. And the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, actually said in their decision 
that the class sizes in New York City schools were too large to provide students with their constitutional right under the state constitution to a sound basic education. Yes, in um, fact, um, Robert Jackson has often um, shared uh, anecdotally how in District 6, uh, there were the, the schools were so overcrowded that children were being bused out of their geographic school district. That's how bad it was. Right. And so the Contracts for Excellence um, basically uh, uh, determined that more money should be spent uh, sent to all high-need schools, including uh, the schools in New York City. But mm-hmm. in return, the, the district was supposed to use it for a limited number of programs that were proven to work to help students learn. But in addition for New York City, and particularly because of the history of class size, um, the law also said that New York City was supposed to uh, use some of this money to lower class sizes in all grades. Unfortunately, um, we started getting money at that point, more than a billion dollars in extra state aid in 2007, 2008. But then class sizes went up and not down. And part of the reason for that was the Great Recession. <clears throat> and New York City actually started cutting back on its own budget to schools at the same time as the state was sending us more money, but then the state stopped sending us money too. And so class sizes started to increase sharply um, under Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and then, you know, be, uh, the state never had sent us the, the full amount, but we still thought it was in the law mm-hmm. and the, the city was not complying and making absolutely no effort to lower class sizes. And so um, in, in, um, 2017, we filed a lawsuit um, along with the Education Law Center and a bunch of parents who are plaintiffs, including you, Joanna, to try to get New York City to actually comply with the law and lower class size. Uh, but the court um, went up to it was appealed to the appellate court and the appellate court. Do you want to tell us what they said? Uh, basically their response was that it was too late. They didn't really argue the merits of the case itself in regards that, um, there should have been a plan in place to reduce class size. Um, but the language of contracts for excellence in, in the law, um, stopped at 2007. Uh, and they said that it was too, the, the time was too foregone and it was too late to, um, have the city and state act on it. Right. The five-year plan was supposed to start in 2007 to 2012, and uh, we had filed the state, the lawsuit after that. But then um, what happened was um, Governor Cuomo for many years had refused to give New York City schools the full complement of what they were owed under the Contracts for Excellence and under the court decision. But when he was uh, resigned from office and Kathy Hochul took his place, she made a deal and decided to to follow through on the original amount that was promised New York City schools and other high-needs districts. She decided to actually settle the lawsuit, and New York City schools are, in the last uh, three years, are receiving more than $1.3 billion in additional state aid. So it was at that point that Class Size Matters got together with the Education Law Center got together with you, Joanna, and Senator Robert Jackson and, and Joanne Simon in the assembly and said, now that we're getting our full complement 
of money from the CFE lawsuit in which class size was a central, if not the central issue in the, in the case, it's time to, to, to try to uh, create some um, insurance that New York City kids would finally get the smaller classes that they need and deserve. Right. So um, do you want to explain what happened with the, the, the law and the permutations of the law? Because there was an original version of it that was submitted and, and sponsored by Senator Jackson, as I said, Assembly Member Simon, um, in I guess it was 2021. Is that right? Or 2020, 2021. Um, yeah. Um, yeah so, yes. Uh, so finally, uh, there was a path forward and, and less of an excuse for New York City to say, you know, can't honor what is part of the law, um, which is class size. And I think that the result of that lawsuit that we mentioned in regards to class size uh, provided like an, an aha moment and an opportunity to strengthen the language around contracts for excellence, update it, um, make sure that um, we, besides average, we're talking about actual caps per, uh, not per grades, but group of grades, right? So for example, K to three to third grade is 20 students. Fourth grade to eighth is 23 students. And the high school years are capped at 25 uh, per class. Uh, there's uh, exceptions, for example, for physical education classes and other performance art classes, you can have up to 40 students. Uh, and so there was a proposal submitted and Senator Jackson and Joanne Simon uh, did submit legislative language uh, to push this forward. And what it did in essence is that it created an opportunity to bring all stakeholders. And by all stakeholders, again, the advocates um, such as Class Size Matters and, and law, uh, the legislators, as well as the other uh, stakeholders, such as um, the teachers union and the principals union, more specifically UFT and CSA and DOE to talk about, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't you. And UFT actually has been fighting for this themselves for a very long time. And it was a, it's, it's been a priority for them uh, for years. And as we had this discussion and said, you know, this is the time to push for this because the phase in of the full funding um, under foundation aid is going to happen. It's already on track uh, to being to fully funding our schools. Um, as we move forward um, in a very persistent, relentless way, uh, Senator Jackson was able to pass the baton uh, to the New York City Education Committee chair, uh, Senator John Liu. And so um, it did get some some changes in terms of the uh, bargaining power that the unions will have in regards to um, having uh, having a plan that the DOE chancellor can approve. Um, but um, ultimately, we were able uh, together to get a class size reduction law passed. Right. And it was so I, I want I really wanted our listeners to have some context for this, because for a lot of people, when the class size law passed, it was like that people were very surprised because they hadn't been following the history of the case. 
and the context and all the struggles throughout the years to get this addressed. But it really, when you see the historical context of it, I think it it makes a lot more sense and people understand where it's coming from. Exactly. Um, and I think context is everything here because I think that uh, what we saw that some of the dissenters were creating a narrative that this came out of nowhere, that is parachuted out of nowhere. Uh, but again, this is something that was discussed de- decades ago as part of how to respond to the inequities in our school system, how to respond uh, to make sure that students who came from underprivileged backgrounds receive a sound basic education, small class size is very much a part of that. Uh, It was a high priority in that fight. Uh, And we were doing actually the responsible thing, right? We were making sure that our schools were funded. And now that they're fully funded, then it's really about doing the thing. And that thing is reducing class size. Right. And, you know, the bill, as as we said, was introduced the year before it actually passed. Mm-hmm. And many, many parent groups um, and advocacy groups wrote resolutions of support for that bill, including the Chancellor's Parents Advisory Council that make uh, represents all the PTAs in the city, many community education councils, the Alliance for Quality Education, the NAACP chapter in New York, uh, and many, many others. And so it was really not... Um, you know, it did not come out of nowhere. It came out of many, many years of struggle and awareness that New York City kids were be essentially being shafted because their class sizes were too large. This is also, late. Yeah, go on. I also want to say, um, just because of other things that I have heard, is that the, the idea of contracts for excellence and having class size be part of it did not come from legislators that have never been in the classroom. First of all, Joanne Simon um, has been um, a, a lawyer uh, for education and and family special education lawyer. Yeah, uh, families with children with special needs. But at the very beginning of the fight, when contracts for excellence was being developed, many, many, many educators were consulted. When we talk about a campaign for fiscal equity, we're talking about a broad coalition of people who engage and participate in public education and weighed in to really provide an understanding of what it would take to provide a sound basic education. And again, class size uh, was always a high priority. Right. There was something called the the, the expert, uh, now I've forgotten what it was called, but the expert educators where they were brought together and they sort of de- decided what should be required for a sound basic education and class size was part of it. Okay. This is Leany Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. And I've been talking to Joanna Garcia, co-chair of the Class Size Working Group and the chief of staff to Senator Robert Jackson. So again, after a lot of advocacy from many parent groups and advocates, including Class Size Matters, that urged him to do so, uh, Chancellor Banks finally agreed to appoint a class size working group to help come up with a plan on how to how to lower class size um, after the law was passed. Um, and members were appointed um, last April. Full disclosure, I was appointed as one of the members of this group. And Joanna, you were elected by the members as co-chair, along with David Marmer, who is the principal of one of the largest and one of the most overcrowded high schools in the city. Francis Lewis High School in Queens. Can you tell us um, 
you know, who some of the other members of the class size working group in terms of their role in the system and what the process of deliberation has looked like, including committees, et cetera. Sure. Uh, so first of all, I want to thank um, Chancellor David Banks for agreeing uh, to make sure that individuals that engage with the public school system have a say as to how this law is going to be implemented. And we see that reflected uh, in the individuals that are in the uh, working group. And it's a broad, you know, spectrum of, of folks. Um, for example, we have parent leaders from different boroughs. We have PEP um, uh, individuals that are. That's that are- Panel for Educational Policy, which is our appointed and elected school board. Yes. And uh, we have ind- teachers. We have parents. We have U of T um, representation. We have CSA representation. We have principals. Um, my co-chair, as you mentioned, is a principal of one of the most overcrowded schools in the city. Uh, we have uh, individuals that are experts when it comes to um, fiscal policy analysis. And so we've been able to have robust conversations about how to how to assist New York City uh, be in compliance with the law. And that's what the charge of the working group is, providing recommendations to assist the Department of Education uh, in being in compliance with the class size reduction law. That's the charge. And because there are so many facets, so many facets uh, to how to implement this law, we, and by we, um, it's Dr. Marmer and I, my co-chair and I, wanted to make sure that there weren't general discussions, but there were also deep dive conversations per section. So we divided the group into subcommittees. And the, I think it was six subcommittees. Um, one was for special education. Another one was for enrollment planning, uh, budgeting and finance, instructional implications and programming, capital planning and staffing and hiring. And what this allowed um, in terms of this process is for individuals to focus on one or two subcommittees where they were really going to dedicate their time, their energy, their analysis and their feedback on. It didn't preclude anyone uh, from providing feedback on all. We always come together as one group uh, but as a result, you, we are drafting and we have drafted and the public will be able to see soon some very specific recommendations um, under these different categories. And uh, it's worked. It seems to have worked really well. Yeah, I think um, it was amazing how hard people worked even over the summer, which I hadn't anticipated because yes. uh, we were supposed to come up with our final report, I think, at the end of October. So I figured that most of the actual deliberations would be September and October, but it turned out that uh, they wanted us to come up with our preliminary draft sooner so we could present them to the public and get feedback. So a lot of the really hard work was done um, in July and August. Yes. And it's it's Lainey, I... um... And I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I really do want to commend um, the working group members because 
I mean, who wants to work, uh, do extra work over the summer? Um, but we pulled through. There were many, many meetings. Again, it's six subcommittees in addition to our whole group meetings. Um, and there was great participation. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I felt to do so earlier, that we also have on the working group representation from the Public Advocates Office, um, from uh, Controller Brad Lander's office. Uh, I'm there on behalf representing uh, Senator Jackson's office, uh, Council Member, Chair of the Education Committee in the City Council, Rita Joseph also has representation, as I believe does the Speaker. So again, all stakeholders are uh, part of this process with an opportunity to weigh in on what the recommendations should be. Right. And just to make it clear, the plan uh, is supposed to achieve those caps over five years. This year is supposed to be the first year of the phase-in. Because of enrollment decline and other factors, um, it's pretty clear that the 20% um, requirement of 20% classes to meet the new caps for this year will be met without any special effort of the DOE. Uh, but in the future years, another 20%, next year it has to be 40%, then 60%, and on until 100% of classes make the cap over the next five years. And that's going to take real planning and effort in terms of budgeting, enrollment planning, building schools in the most overcrowded areas, um, on and on to achieve those, those caps. And I, I do think that that um, it's amazing how hard people worked on this and really seriously. Um, and and it's really, you know, we'll, we're really looking forward to presenting our preliminary proposals in the public engagement sessions that start next week. Can you explain about those public engagement sessions? Yeah, so they start today is Sunday, so it's actually this week. Right, uh, this week, right. Uh, so there's, there's three, there's a total of three opportunities for, um, the public to provide us, not to provide us feedback, but to engage directly with us on the recommendation. So the first one, it's going to be this Tuesday, September 26th, and it's a virtual meeting. Uh, and this is from Manhattan in Brooklyn, and it will be from 5 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Interpretation services will be provided in Mandarin, Russian, and Spanish. And then the next day is for, it's also virtual, and that will also be from 5 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. This is for Queens, Bronx, and Staten Island. And finally, we will be in person at the Martin Luther King Campus Auditorium that's located at 122 Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, it's around 66th Street. And that will be on Monday, October 2nd. Again, 5 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Interpretation services will also be provided here as in on the one on, on Wednesday. And um, I urge people to please come. We want your feedback. And a way that you can sign up or learn more is by going to schools, with an S, schools.nyc.gov forward slash class size. And I'm going to say that again. And I'm sure if you if you follow Laney, Laney or Class Size Matters, uh, it's on the website as well. It's schools.nyc.gov forward slash class size. Why is this important to hear from you? We do not want to develop these 
um, recommendations. Again, these are preliminary. It's not a done deal. This is preliminary. This, of course, is a result of a lot of hard work, of a good representation in terms of stakeholders. Um, but we want to hear from the public. We want to hear from the mom who works two jobs and doesn't have time to pay attention to the nitty gritty of policy. But, but her child's going to be impacted by ultimately what the chancellor, um, uh, how the chancellor decides to comply with the law. Uh, we want to hear from parents from everywhere. We want to hear from teachers. Anecdotally, I hear from teachers all the time the importance of reducing class size to providing a quality education, to feeling like they can reach that child, to feeling like they could do more, that they can go deeper in the material, that they can support more. And especially after uh, the pandemic, we've seen how important social emotional there's no standardized test to, to measure social emotional well-being, but we know, we know how important it is to make sure that we provide the right setting um, and the right future for the students in our New York City public schools. So again, do what you can to provide um, your feedback. Individuals will be um, given two minutes. Um, you can comment on the proposals. Just so that you understand how it's going to be set up, it's going to be set up by a subcommittee. So the subcommittee chairs, those those categories that you heard me mention earlier, are going to um, present uh, so that it's a little bit easier for the public to digest um, the recommendations, the preliminary recommendations that we are proposing. And um, I think there's going to be an email address also where people can send their feedback um, as well. Now, some of the proposals, or at least a summary of the proposals, are supposed to go online before the sessions that start Tuesday and Wednesday. Is that right, Joanna? Yes, yes. we hope that they're online on Monday to give folks a, an opportunity. Um, it's taken a little bit longer than expected uh, because the staff at the DOE wants to do the due diligence of making sure to translate everything just in regards to language access and equity. And so um, since it's going up on the website tomorrow anyway, can you give us a sort of brief, very brief advance um, summary of some of the proposals? Um, I know it's very complicated, but. It is very complicated. Um, and I, and I want to make sure to strike the balance of not speaking um before it's public, um, but uh, let's look at, for example, um, some of the some of the the committees. For example, um, st we heard a great deal about staffing and hiring um, and the teacher shortage, and this subcommittee did a really great job of developing recommendations to address the shortage. Um, to incentivize recruiting uh, and to support teachers, regardless of what school um, they are are teaching in. And so um, it's really important to uh, be able to comment on those. Um, if we talk about programming, for example, there, there is a subcommittee that, that speaks to programming. And, and I think that this, this subcommittee 
which while may it sound elusive, like for example, what is that? What does it mean? Programming. Um, and programming means, and is really critical. It could be a really cost saver, um, to implementing the uh, this class size law to complying with the class size law because it really is about how are we reprogramming for example students uh, schedules and how are we making sure that we're safeguarding for example spaces for uh, students with IEPs and there was a conversation if we talk about uh, enrollment um, there is a conversation about uh, capping or redistributing students or um, other kind of options. And what's really important also as well as, uh, as in terms of capital conversations, um, what's going on uh, in terms of how do we prioritize where we're building um, and what will trigger building a new school. And what's really important uh, to understand is that the public is going to hear all these different recommendations by category, um, and then we're going to hear the the feedback um, and discern a little bit over the feedback that we receive. Um, but then there is the conversation about how are we going to apply these recommendations? What is our recommendation in regards to the methodology? For example, if you hear about uh, cap and enrollment, it doesn't mean that that's the first thing that's going to be recommended. And one of the things that we de deliberated heavily in our working group is supporting teachers, supporting principals and their autonomy and their knowledge and their understanding of their own school communities, as well as making sure there are opportunities built in in the recommendations uh, for school community engagement. So there is a sense of self-determination while at the same time asking the DOE uh, to provide the needed support to implement the best case scenario for these schools in compliance with the law. And I know that's not too specific, um, but I hope that I can underscore the importance of hearing from the public. And again, we really want to hear from the teacher that, you know, says, you know, I never get involved in anything that's political. I don't go to these hearings. I want to hear from that teacher. It doesn't matter how long that teacher has been teaching. We want to hear from all parents. I would love to hear from a, a parent who, um, uh, who has recently arrived um, uh, to uh, to New York City. Uh, because one of the things that we haven't discussed enough, admittedly, in the working group is the impact of the newcomers um, mm -hmm. that we've seen um, in our schools every day. And while there's been a great deal of discussion of how some of our schools have already uh meet the, you know, uh, meet the, not so many, but how New York City is in compliance for this first part, this first year, it's not intentional. It's, it's kind of accidental. It's, it's a, it's a relic of the pandemic. And we have to make sure that we set up all of our schools for success and that we don't create a system or rely on a system uh, that creates a revolving door of schools that are in compliance one year and not in compliance in another. So we have to have great short-term and long-term plans. And you will see that in our recommendations, short-term and long-term plans. 
So callers and listeners, um, listeners, please call in if you want to, to have questions or comments about what should happen. You, you're, you're sitting with the co-chair and one of the members of the committee right now. Um, we want to hear from you, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. You just mentioned something which is a real concern to me, which is, is the long-term city planning. So, um, Mayor Adams, quite rightfully, is very focused on increasing affordable housing. And I think the number is he wants to create 100,000 affordable housing units in New York City over the next few years. But one of the things that needs to happen along with that housing is making sure that there are schools for all those kids um, and families to attend. And in the past, the city planning process really has not been focused sufficiently on making sure that when there's large-scale development or rezonings, that enough schools are built along with them, um, either before or at the same time. Often schools are not built, or if they're built at all, are built years afterwards. With this class size mandate, it's more important than ever that any vision of, of city planning and any process of city planning must take into account the need for space for smaller classes at the same time. And I was... I was very surprised, I'm not surprised, but I think it, it's it, it's indicative of this, that the, the city planning manual called the CEQA manual is still aligned to the old class sizes and not the new class sizes of um, the new law. And so that's one of the things that, that I'm going to be talking about um, as co-chair of the Capital Planning Committee, um, mm-hmm. that um, changes have to be made not just to DOE policies, but to city planning as well. Yes, yeah. I I wanted to add to that just a personal story. Uh, so when I was president of CEC six, um, I was also a member of North Manhattan's Not for Sale, which was um, a coalition fighting against the inward rezoning. Uh, and part of my testimony in opposing the inward rezoning plan as it was is that it didn't adequately um, provide for new school seats. It talked about how many um, new residents will come into the area, but it did not address issues of infrastructure and ignore the fact that um, it was going to have an impact in our school and made and 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 it made no plans uh, for new school seats at all. And I think that it's negligent. I think we have to be able to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. If we know that there is a quest for building uh, massive new housing in a concentrated area geographically, then school construction authority and the Office of Enrollment and Planning in the New York City Public Schools has to be part of the conversation and have real plans and real concrete projections of how many seats will be needed. Like that has to be part of the development plans. Right. And so some of our other recommendations are going to be that the Community Education Council should be in, involved in, on an advisory level, the way community boards are now in these large scale plans for redevelopment, rezonings to make sure that you get input from parents on the ground on these issues. Um, and, and really that schools have to be one of the central focuses of these plans. And too often um, they are not. Um, one of the other issues that have come up in the discussion around class size 
is why wasn't the law or why why weren't we advocating for only the low performing schools to lower class size? And um, we have, um, you know, some schools where, you know, you could say most of the kids are doing OK. They're they're testing on grade level. Um, a lot of them end up going um, to, into higher ed or careers. Why is it important that those schools, as well as our most struggling schools, um, get smaller classes? Do you have a response to that? I do. Um, sorry. Um, first of all, um, I I actually sometimes cringe at the word underperforming because how are we determining that a school is underperforming? And it's a very loaded term, uh, and it actually it's it's punitive as well. And I know that it's based on state test scores and it it's not based on the progress the individual students make, uh, the challenges and hurdles that the wonderful teachers and principals of these schools um jump over and 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 achieve to support students. And it also penalizes schools that take a high concentration uh of high need students. Um so and the other thing is that State tests are not the end-all, be-all of determining success. That's why you have uh, many higher ed institutions actually reconsidering whether or not to have their own standardized test process in their in terms of the uh, admissions process. Uh, so, and the last thing that I'll say, and and maybe I might say something else on it, but it it's a talking point that ignores the fact that we're talking about equity over equality. And what I mean by that is that if there is a student with high need or that comes from an underprivileged background sitting in a school where 65% did great, I'm sorry, what what's going to happen with the 35%? And what if this student is one of those 35%? And reducing class size actually will have a deeper impact in this child's success um, that it may be with other students who have private tutoring, uh, who have other privileges, who don't have to worry about learning uh, another language, uh, so who don't live in an overcrowded house- household, who don't worry about food insecurity, who don't worry about being displaced from their home. But yet all children, all children, regardless of where they are in school, are entitled to a sound basic education. And again, that includes small class size so that that teacher can do what that teacher went to school for, and that's to educate every single child in that classroom. So um, one of the things I mentioned early on um, in my uh, news recap at the uh, start of the show was the mayor's proposal uh, to cut 15% of all city agencies, including the Department of Education. Uh, we're all hoping that this is just uh, scare tactics and that he's not going to go through with it. But how can schools possibly be lowering class size and hiring the additional teachers necessary if their budgets are going to be cut to the bone like this? I want to be careful not to provide an excuse to not... Um actually recruit teachers and and comply with the law, which is uh, reducing class size. Um, I think that any cuts to the education department is going to create huge challenges 
in in really investing in reducing class size. And of course, uh, hiring and supporting staff is a big piece of it. Uh, so um, while I want to be careful about commenting on what I know will be a budget dance that will take us to June of next year. I do want to implore all of your listeners to do everything they can to make sure that those cuts don't happen. It's really important. And among the recommendations in our our preliminary um, presentation are a few or some of them that have to do with financing and budget. So I think um, people should look out for that as well. Can I also um, say something as, as we're on it? Um, and, and it does speak a little bit to the proposed cuts. Um, we, we as a society, as a city, we're always saying how important public education is. And we cannot be a city that balances its budget on the backs of students. And we continue to do that over and over again. And a scare tactic or not, no matter, you know, whether or not it shakes out in the end, this kind of rhetoric creates a great deal of uncertainty and instability in our schools um, that our our school administrators and teachers don't don't deserve. Our, our students shouldn't have to worry whether or not there are going to be cuts to their uh, classrooms or schools. And it's ironic because the chancellor keeps on talking about wanting to attract more kids to the schools and actually is spending millions of dollars on a new advertising campaign. I don't know whether you've heard it um, on the radio or in the subways talking about how parents should be sending their kids to New York City public schools. And at the same time, he's um, threat, you know, the mayor is threatening these huge budget cuts, which really don't help uh, attract new families, I can, I, I can surely say. Um, so, so just uh, quickly, um, when, when can we expect to see the final report? Uh, so the final report should be available for everyone um, at the end of October. And just to provide uh, additional context to the report, uh, everyone heard us talk about the preliminary recommendations that's going to be part of our uh, public engagement this week. And on, and on October 2nd, uh, we that will lead us into having additional conversations to finalize our recommendations. And the recommendations will be made public uh, within a report. And what's great about the fact that it's going to be a report is that it's going to provide the nuances and the thought process and the intention behind our recommendations. And uh, again, as I stated earlier, um, it is a very diverse um, group. And that means that there are diverse opinions and, and positions. And we want to make sure to memorialize that in our report so we can do do justice to the collective dialogue that we've been engaging in the working group. So I'm going to put links to the information about the public engagement sessions as well as where we hope um, um, some of the summaries of our initial proposals are going to be on the DOE website. I'll put that on the WBAI website and also on the podcast in the resources section. I want to thank you so much, Joanna, for being on our show tonight, Talk Out of School, and all your hard work, both on the working group and in general over so many years for New York City kids. Uh, you've really been so important 
to moving this issue as well as so many other important education issues forward. Thank you so much and I hope that you might come on again when the when the report is finalized. I would love to. Thank you, Lainey, for having me. This is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show is available as a podcast if you missed the live version or want to recommend it to a friend. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School. You can call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. There's no other show on the air that deeply delves into the issues affecting our schools like this one. We really need the support of listeners like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ass. We will be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom ready to sell. If you have time to eat Back in the classroom Open your books Keep it the teacher Don't know how mean she looks Becoming a buddy Through the BAI Buddy System Is simple Donate as little as $10 On a monthly basis Thus forming a relationship That benefits you The listener And us here At 99.5 FM Simply visit Give to The number two WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org. And donate today. We are a listener supported radio station. But as a buddy, WBAI can also support you. Hey, this is Michael, a BAI buddy from Brooklyn. WBAI, oh, WBAI, you're listening to WBAI, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org on the web. Listen and learn. And become a BAI buddy today. Kenny of Everything Old is New Again every Sunday night at 10. Please join me then and please support WBAI at our brand new old number, which is 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Hey, it's our old number, but it's new again. Because everything old is new again. I like it. Paulina Vasiliev. And I'm Ann Garrison. We're here to tell you that COVID race and democracy is now 
capitalism race and democracy. We will continue to cover COVID, but we've reimagined ourselves as we broadened our coverage over the three years we've been broadcasting. So stay tuned to WBAI at 4 p.m. Mondays for Capitalism, Race and Democracy. to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. WBAI's election balloting period has started and you can vote through September 30th, 1159 p.m. Look out for a link to your e-ballot in the form of an email from invitations at mail.electionbuddy.com with the subject line, Vote Now, Pacifica Foundation, Inc., 2023 Local Station Elections. You may also receive a text message with a link to your e-ballot. If you need to request a new ballot, file a ballot request form by visiting elections.pacifica.org. If you do not have access to the Internet, please leave a voicemail on 213-635-9363. Please only file one request as multiple requests.